John 13. Our text today begins in verse 31, and we'll actually study today all the way through verse 14 of chapter 14. And as you, you've been with us the last couple of weeks, you know that the ministry of Jesus has drastically shifted in the Gospel of John. The first part of John's Gospel, first half approximately, first 12 chapters, Jesus' ministry was primarily outward focused. It was, it was done in public. It was done as he traveled around in, in various towns and villages through Israel, doing signs, as John calls them, in order to reveal the nature of who he is as the Messiah. As I say, that focus of his ministry has dramatically shifted here in chapter 13. He's now with that small band of disciples. It began as as 12. There were 12 in this upper room having the Passover meal together. And in the last two weeks, we've seen Jesus humble himself and wash his disciples' feet, instructing them in, in what that means for their ongoing ministry and service to one another, to, to do as he has done for others. And then last week we saw the, the dramatic scene of, of Judas being called out by Jesus as the betrayer, as the one who would then leave the, the upper room and go begin the process of turning Jesus over to the authorities. And so, as we come to verse 31 of chapter 13, that scene has shifted even a little bit more. Now we have just the 11 disciples. These are the 11 that will eventually be, following Jesus' resurrection, the apostles. These are now, Judas has left. Judas has gone to do what Satan entered into his heart uh, to do. And now Jesus is in this upper room with now the remaining 11 disciples. And his focus turns to ministering to them. He's already begun that through his washing their feet and and teaching them through that. And now he will embark on what we commonly call his farewell discourse. That begins at the beginning of chapter 14. And goes through chapter 16. Chapter 17 is his, his prayer, his high priestly prayer. We call that his, his farewell discourse, chapters 14 through 16. As he speaks personally to those 11 disciples in that upper room. And his aim as he begins that, we'll see this in chapter 14 a little bit later today. His aim is to comfort their troubled hearts. In fact, that's how chapter 14 begins. The words of Jesus to them, Let not your hearts be troubled. And the narrative, as it begins back in chapter 31 of chapter 13, gives us a glimpse into some of the causes of why it was that their hearts were troubled in the first place. Why Jesus felt constrained to calm and comfort their troubled hearts. 
And the last part here of, of chapter 13, kind of two, two scenes as, as John structures it, gives us a, a window into the disciples' thinking, their state of mind as they sit in that upper room on this night before Jesus is betrayed, or not the night Jesus is betrayed, uh, a little bit later on. So we are going to see in the narrative the causes of their troubled heart. As the evening has gone on, that trouble in their heart, that unease has only built and developed. In fact, we're told earlier in chapter 13 that even Jesus was troubled in his heart. There was a lot going on in this upper room. Jesus knowing what is about to happen to him. His heart is troubled. As he has begun to explain a little more explicitly to his disciples, he is, he is going away. He is going to be killed. And their hearts, that unease and trouble has built up and grown in their hearts. But in spite of what has, is going on in Jesus' own heart, the trouble that, that he has, just as we saw him minister to them earlier in, in chapter 13, though all of this was going on in his spirit, we see that what he wants to do more than meet his own needs is to minister to the hearts of his disciples. Jesus' goal in this is to comfort their troubled hearts. So what was causing the hearts of the disciples to be troubled? As I briefly mentioned a second ago, they are, they are confused and uncertain about what's about to happen. You remember, Chris, a couple weeks ago, laid out for us some of the context of what was going on in this upper room. And part of that was the squabble that they were having about who was going to rule, who's going to be the greatest when Jesus established his kingdom. And so they enter this upper room with these aspirations of, of Jesus ruling as the Messiah and them having a, a chief role in that. <coughs> and now they understand that Jesus is going to be departing. They're confused and they're uncertain about, okay, what's going to happen to Jesus? What, why is this happening? What's going to happen to us? What does this mean for us? And although there's not a direct link made by John as he records all of this, leading into that farewell discourse in chapter 14. I think what John records here at the end of chapter 13 gives us some understanding of why the disciples' hearts were troubled or a little more specifically what it, what it was that they were so troubled about. Let's read together verses 31 through 38 of chapter 13 and consider some of the things that, that lead Jesus to come out and say, let not your heart be troubled. Follow along as I read, beginning in verse 31. When he, that is Judas, had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, Yet a little while while I am with you, you will seek me. Yet a little while I am with you, you will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I say also 
to you. Where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, Where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay, my, I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. <coughs> these verses give us some sense of why the disciples' hearts were so troubled. First, their hearts are troubled, be, troubled because of the impending departure of Jesus. So Jesus speaks here. We, we, we just read in verses 31 and 32, we, we see reference to the imminency of his departure. Judas has gone out. The wheels have begun turning and they're, they're now, it's quickly moving toward the end. Judas has departed and Jesus says, now is the Son of Man glorified. God will glorify him at once. What is, what is going to happen here is going to happen soon. And this impending departure of Jesus has thrown the disciples for a loop. They don't know, they don't know what to do. Not only does Jesus speak in terms of imminency in, in the sense that it's going to happen soon, it's going to happen now, at once, but he also speaks of it in terms of separation from the disciples. He says that just a little while longer he's going to be with them. And just as he said to the Jews earlier in John's Gospel, he says now to his disciples, where I'm going, you cannot follow me. You can't go where I'm going. So the mood at this Last Supper has become quite solemn for the disciples. Jesus, the man that came and called them out of their former lives, <coughs> their former livelihood, their occupations, and he called them to follow him as his disciples. And they have spent the last three years traveling everywhere Jesus has gone. They've been with Jesus They've been by his side as he has performed all of these signs. And now Jesus tells them that he is going to be leaving. He's going to be departing and they can't go with him. <coughs> I believe we see a glimpse of perhaps how shaken the disciples are by this reality in Peter's response to Jesus in verse 36. Somebody could grab me some water. That would be awesome. Thank you. Verses 31 through 35, Jesus, and we'll, we'll look at this in a little more detail in a second. Jesus lays out for them this picture of his work on the cross being the means by which he is, he is glorified and brings glory to God. Thank you. 
Jesus speaks of His work on the cross being the means by which God will be glorified through Him and the Son of Man will be glorified. Then He gives them this commandment to love one another just as He has loved them. there's There's some weighty stuff. There's some profound things that Jesus is teaching them there. And what is Peter's response? Peter's response is basically, yeah, 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 but where are you going? It's almost as if Peter misses, and I think the rest, they miss the significance of what Jesus is teaching them. They're so consumed by the fact that he's leaving. They're so preoccupied with getting their questions answered about where he's going, what he's, what he's doing, that they miss the glory and beauty of what he has just told them and called them to do. So they are troubled because of his impending departure. They're also troubled because of what Jesus tells Peter, the inevitable denials that Peter We'll, we'll do later that night. We've already seen that Jesus tells Peter that he cannot follow now. Where you're going, or where I'm going, you cannot follow me now. In one sense, Jesus is telling Peter, it's not time for you to die, just as I'm going to die. It's not time for you to die. You can't go with me now. It's not your time to die yet. But on a much deeper level, Jesus is embarking on a mission that no one else can go along with Him. The Son of Man is the only one who is able to accomplish the mission that Jesus is setting out on. To make a sacrifice for the atonement of sin. So yes, it's not time for Peter to die, but even if it was, Peter cannot plumb the depths of what Jesus is about to, to do through his departure. There is a meaningful promise here that Jesus gives to Peter. Although you cannot follow me now, you will follow me afterward. I think that speaks of what we'll see a little bit in, in chapter 14 of Peter will follow. He will go to where Jesus is going. He will, he will even help serve to accomplish Jesus' mission of, of rescuing sinners. And he will go to where Jesus is going eventually. But not now. Peter continues to question the Lord. Plays the part of loyal follower. Lord, why can I not follow you now? Verse 37, I will lay down my life for you. This is typical Peter, right? And earlier in Jesus' ministry, Peter rebuked Jesus when he told the disciples that he was going to Jerusalem to be killed. Peter rebuked Jesus, telling him that there's no way, there's no way that I'm going to allow you to go to Jerusalem to be killed. That's when Jesus told him to get behind me, Satan. 
It's also earlier in this evening that Peter initially refused to allow Jesus to wash his feet. So this was a a typical response of of Peter. Lord, I'm going to lay down my life for you. You're going to, I'm not going to let you be killed. I'm going to go sacrifice my life for you. How ironic it is that Peter offers to lay down his life for Jesus, who, as the good shepherd, was about to do what he talked about in chapter 10. He is going to go lay down his life for the sheep. And once again, Jesus exposes the weakness in Peter. By informing Peter that later that night, not only are you not going to be willing to lay down your life for me, but you're going to three times deny any association with me. John doesn't record Peter's response here. Matthew and Mark actually record following this statement. The the rest of the disciples actually reaffirm that they're going to be willing to lay down their life. But I'm sure that these men trusted Jesus. I mean, they've been around Jesus long enough to believe the things that he says. And I'm sure that the thought of Peter, I mean, Peter was, in many senses, their leader. Certainly their vocal leader. And if Peter is going to deny Jesus... What does that mean for the rest of us? Certainly this would add to their unease at what was about to happen. Jesus is departing. Jesus has told Peter that Peter is going to deny Jesus three times. And all of this adds to the the trouble that is hovering in this room as Jesus interacts with his disciples. the words Jesus speaks to his disciples in those words he he seeks to provide comfort for their troubled hearts so as we saw earlier chapter 14 this discourse begins with Jesus words let not your heart be troubled but even what he says earlier in chapter 13 ought to provide comfort, should give comfort and hope. Although the disciples did not fully grasp the words Jesus spoke to them on this night. And it's almost like I remember, some of you may identify with this, you know, at your, think back to your wedding. How many of you remember what the pastor said to you at your wedding? Probably nothing, right? I mean, in that moment, you're not really listening to what they're saying. You're not paying attention to what they're talking about. Even if you do, I mean, I guess marriage is a good illustration of that. Even you know what, what he's telling you about marriage, you're, that, I, I don't get it at that point. And then, you know, the years start going. Now all of a sudden I understand what he was talking about. You know, it's not, it's not all roses and everything's not perfect. All of a sudden I understand, you know, those things and premarital counseling i understand some of that a little bit better now you know 10 years into marriage 
And I think the same thing was true for the disciples. You know, on that night, their minds are going a thousand miles an hour. I mean, I wonder how much of Jesus' words they even picked up on. But we know that years later, these words were certainly words of, of hope and comfort to them. And in fact, you read through some of this, and if you, turn, if you were to turn to 1 John, you know, the things that John writes in his, epistle, the first, his first epistle, 1 John, are so parallel to what Jesus says in verses 31 through 35 of John 13. When he speaks to my little children, speaking of a new commandment to love one another, he is recalling the words that, that Jesus said on this night. And so the, the things Jesus said on this night had a profound effect on the disciples. Although they, they probably didn't pick up on all of that that night. I think there's wisdom for us in that. Because as we, as we sit here today, some of the things that we're reading, the, the, the trouble that's going on in, in the disciples' hearts, that we, we may not necessarily identify with all of that right now. But it serves us well to, to hear the words of the Lord, to prepare us for the day when, when our hearts are troubled, just as the disciples. To remember the words of the Lord that He gave to them and by extension to us for our comfort. So what does Jesus tell them? Quickly, I want to move through several ways Jesus provides comfort to his disciples first he he comforts them by reminding them that his death was a means by which he and the father were glorified so the disciples and many others in israel viewed the death of the messiah as a failure they they did not pick up on the fact that Many of them did not pick up on the fact that the Messiah was going to die. And so for the Messiah to die was, was a bad thing. But Jesus reminds his disciples that no, his, his death was actually the means by which he himself, the Son of Man, and God the Father were ultimately glorified. And think about the ways that the death of Jesus on the cross bring him glory. Jesus' death on the cross is the central moment in all of human history. And it is, it is the event that really all of human history has been pointing up to, up to that point. And from Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve fell in the garden, and God promised that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent, everything has been leading up to this moment where Jesus would offer himself, Jesus, the seed of the woman, would offer himself upon the cross. This, this was what, this was the pinnacle of human history. The death of Jesus on the cross. Jesus' death on the cross reverses the curse that is upon mankind. Going back to the garden, back to the fall, when God placed mankind under the curse the curse of sin. You can read 
many other places in the New Testament. Think of Romans and Galatians, among others, that speak of our condition under the curse of the law. And yet in Christ we are free from the curse of the law. In Christ we are, we are freed from slavery to the law. We are free to obey. So Jesus' death on the cross reverses that curse. And by doing so brings glory to Him as, as the one who, who does the reversing. Jesus' death on the cross defeated our greatest enemy, Satan. As promised in Genesis 3, Jesus is the seed of the woman that crushes the head of of the serpent. And though Satan still has some liberty to tempt us to sin and has his way in the world for a time, ultimately he has been defeated and his defeat happened at the cross. So Jesus going to the cross is doing so not out of defeat. He's not resigned to giving up his life because he was not a popular teacher. He's, he's going there intentionally to victory that only he can accomplish over sin and the curse and Satan. But not only does Jesus' death on the cross bring glory to himself, it also brings glory to his Father. This is what Jesus is saying in verses 31 and 32. Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in Him. If God is glorified in Him, God will also glorify Him in Himself and glorify Him at once. So not only is Jesus, the Son of Man, going to be glorified, but He is going to glorify His Father through His departure and death. Jesus' death displays God's perfect justice. Nowhere is God's justice and judgment for sin made more clear than in the death of of Jesus. Where Jesus, in in the place of sinners, bore the wrath of God for sin. Jesus' death displays God's enduring faithfulness. Again, from Genesis 3 to this point, God's faithfulness is at stake. God has made a promise to humanity. He has made a promise to His people that is yet to be fulfilled. And in the cross, His faithfulness is demonstrated because the the promises that He made to His people from the very beginning and repeatedly throughout their history now comes to pass. God is faithful. Jesus' death displays God's unfailing love. Just like nowhere is God's justice, even God's faithfulness, and and all the rest of His attributes more perfectly and clearly displayed than in the cross. So, God's love, and this is the the pinnacle of the display of God's love. For Him to, He says in John 3.16, God loved the world that He gave His own Son. God offered up His own Son as a sacrifice because of the great love that He had for His people. And so Jesus comforts the hearts of His disciples by reminding them that His death is not a sign of defeat. His death is the ultimate victory over sin. It's the means by which He and, and the Father are glorified. But also, Jesus 
seeks to comfort them by this new commandment that He gives them. This is the means by which God is glorified through us. So it's through Jesus' death that He and the Father are glorified. And now through our obedience to His command, this new commandment that He gives, we are able to bring glory to Him. He is glorified through us. Our, our obedience to this command is a twofold means of glorifying God. First, God is glorified in our own hearts as we contemplate the love that we have received from the Father. Verse 34, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. So God is glorified as we contemplate and meditate on the fact that we have received and enjoy the love of God. There is no way that we can overestimate the love of God which has been bestowed upon us through Christ. And so when we remember that love, God is glorified in our hearts as we worship Him because of His love. But also, God is glorified through us as we exhibit the same self-sacrificing love that He exhibited for us by giving His Son. Verse 35, By this all people will know that you are My disciples if you have love for one another. The way God receives glory is for we as His disciples demonstrate the same sort of love that we have received from Him. This is how God is glorified through us. When, when others see us respond to that which we have received from God. What makes this commandment a new command? After all, and the command to love one another is not a new command, right? I mean, we can go to the Old Testament and find God giving commands to love one another, to love God, love others. But why does Jesus say this is a new command that He's giving? I believe the difference lies in Jesus' understanding about what He is about to do in inaugurating this new covenant. Jesus, through His death, is, is bringing about the new covenant that has been prophesied. A new covenant where God will forgive sins, wash away sins, grant a new heart to those who repent of their sin. A new covenant where God will enable us to obey His commandments. This is, this is what Jesus is bringing about through His death. Therefore, those who become His disciples through that new covenant, that's you and that's me, as we enter into faith in, in Christ and His work for us, we enter into that new covenant. We are made partakers of that new covenant. And we are enabled to obey His command, this command, and others in a way that no one else has ever been able to obey that command prior to Jesus' work on the cross. We, by obeying His command to, to love others, to sacrifice ourselves in, in love for one another, we glorify God by 
identifying ourselves as His disciples. Then let's turn our attention to chapter 14. We continue to observe how Jesus seeks to comfort the troubled hearts of His disciples. Follow along as I begin reading in verse 1. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in Me. In My Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to Myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to Him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been so long with you and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. But the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. So Jesus continues to lovingly comfort the hearts of His troubled disciples by reminding them that His departure is the means by which He is continuing to work on their behalf. It says, believe in God, believe also in Me. Basically tell them, trust, trust Me. Trust in God, trust in Me. Believe the things that I am telling you. I am going away. But the reason I'm going away is for your benefit. We've already seen that He's going away immediately to the cross to offer Himself as a sacrifice, but following that, He will be raised again and He will return to glory at His Father's right hand. And when He does that, when He returns to His Father, He is preparing a place for His disciples. And His promise to them is this, I'm going and I'm going to, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And it's not even so much about the place, right? Where, where is Jesus' focus as He speaks to His disciples? It's not about where I am going. His point to them is, I'm going to come again. I'm going to take you to Myself. And where I am, you will be. So he, He's telling them that He's going away for their benefit. Because He is preparing a place that they will enjoy His presence forever. There's coming a day where they will be reunited with Jesus. For them, they've already experienced that. They've already been 
reunited with Jesus forever. That day still awaits us. We look forward to the day when we will be reunited with our Savior and we will be with Him forever. We will enjoy His presence forever. There will be no more departure. There will be no more separation. We will be with Him for eternity. So the the, the very thing that perhaps is the primary cause of their confusion and unease is the fact that Jesus is leaving them. And His promise to them is, I am leaving them, but I am going to return. It's for your benefit that I'm going away because I'm going to prepare a place and I'm going to return. I'm going to take you to Myself. Let not your heart be troubled. This departure is is a, a temporary separation. He also points out that Jesus Himself is the means by which we have life in God. Jesus is the the means by which we have life in God. They still, this time verbalized by Thomas, Lord, we don't know where You're going. How how can we know the way? We We don't know where You're going. How can we know the way? Jesus in this sixth I am statement of John's Gospel, says, I am the way. You, you do know the way. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus reminds them that He is the means by which we have life with God. We've already seen Jesus repeatedly as He interacted with the Jewish leaders earlier in the book. He made the same point to them that I I and the Father are one. You, you, You cannot get to the Father except through Me. Jesus reminds His disciples here that He is the only way to have access to God. You cannot get to God apart from Jesus. And all of that access through Christ is wrapped up in the thing that He was getting ready to do. His death. We talked several weeks ago in another text that how we deal with Jesus, how we respond to Jesus, determines our standing before God. It's only through believing in Jesus, trusting in Jesus as our Savior, that we stand before God in security and safety and salvation. Apart from coming to the Father through Jesus, we have no hope of salvation. So He is going away to provide and accomplish the means by which we have access to God. It is through His death that He is the way to God. He is the truth. He is the ultimate revelation of God. The ultimate revelation of God's truth. The things that He says are true. And He is the life. He is the only source of life that we have. Apart from Christ, there will be 
no hope for eternal life. He promises the disciples that He will come again, He will take them, they will be with Him forever. But for those that do not believe Jesus, that reject the work that He did on the cross, will not enjoy that same eternal life, but will instead be judged by Christ. Jesus' revelation of God to us is enough. This is another aspect of the comfort that Jesus provides to His disciples. They, they, want, they want more. Philip says, show us the Father. That's enough for us. Just show us the Father. Jesus lovingly reminds them I, I am the Father. I and the Father are one. I, you've seen me. You've seen the Father. I'm reminded of the difference in the way Jesus responds to His disciples and the way He responded to the Jewish leaders earlier in the book when they, they wanted to see the Father. They didn't, they didn't believe that He and the Father were one. And yet Jesus here is, is patiently dealing with His disciples. You've seen me, you have seen the Father. That's enough. I am the revelation from God to you. Jesus is the sole means by which we have access to see and know the Father. The book of Hebrews makes it clear that Jesus is the, the pinnacle of God's revelation to mankind. It's through Him that we know the Father. It's through Him that we have access to the Father. And then Jesus' departure guarantees fruitful ministry for His disciples. Again, Jesus' departure, His death, is not the end of the story. The book is not closed when Jesus dies, as if that was a nice period in, in history. It's, it's over. It was good while it lasted. No, in fact, Jesus affirms here for His disciples and the rest of Scripture and the rest of human history will testify to the fact that, no, this was not the end of the book. This was just the beginning of the story. Because Jesus, by departing and offering Himself as a sacrifice for sin, it's by means of that that His disciples will actually accomplish greater works than He did. We've just had 12 chapters in John's Gospel of the signs that he performed. They were, they were miraculous, from turning water into wine to raising Lazarus from the dead. That was, that, that's amazing stuff. And yet Jesus tells his disciples that when I depart, you're going to accomplish greater works than those. And he makes it very clear that it's because he is going to his Father. It's because he's leaving that they will enjoy this more fruitful ministry. In the next section, he's going to talk about the coming of the Holy Spirit in his absence that will enable and empower that ministry. 
I believe what Jesus is, is referring to when he speaks of greater works than Jesus is yes, the disciples will accomplish some of those same miracles. They will heal. The book of Acts records healings that the disciples do in Jesus' name. I think what Jesus is referring to is the unprecedented advance of the gospel. As he, as he goes to his Father, and, and as he does, he commissions his disciples to preach the gospel to the ends of the earth. And the works done by the succeeding generations of his disciples, the work that we're called to do today, is that same work of advancing the gospel in ways beyond the scope of, of what Jesus accomplished in his earthly ministry. Instead, through Jesus' death and salvation that it brings, is gathering together a multitude of disciples to advance his work, to do the works of the Father, to advance his kingdom upon the earth. So there is hope for the disciples. There is hope of bringing glory to to the Father. There's hope of being with Christ forever. There's hope of fruitful ministry ahead for them. But in order to in order to get to all that, they have to endure the the darkness of the, the, the next hour. Jesus hour. It's it's here. And yet as Jesus approaches it. He, he wants His disciples to understand the comfort that lies in, in what He is about to do and, and the implications that that has for their lives and ministry. So Father, we pray that You would comfort our hearts whatever whatever state of, of trouble and turmoil we, we experience right now. But I pray that You would comfort our hearts through the, the promises made by Jesus to His disciples and, and to us as, as His disciples, as His children. We ask that You would help us in our weakness to believe things that Jesus has said. Believe them to be true. He is the truth. What He has said is true. So help us to believe. Help us to remember that that the darkest point of of Jesus' life, humanly speaking, was the, the greatest moment of victory for Him and for us. We We still enjoy the benefit that His death has brought. So whatever whatever way that each of us needs this truth ministered to our heart today, we pray that Your Spirit would do so. That we would be able to live our lives with confidence knowing that The victory has been won. 
we will enjoy eternal presence with our Savior. And even here, we will enjoy blessing. We will, we will be called to endure difficulty. So give us eyes to see our Savior, and to look to Him, to pursue Him, that we might experience the joy and satisfaction that only comes through, through knowing Him as our Savior. We pray these things in His name. Amen.